0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, December 26, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Cato's letters form the namesake of the Cato Institute. So, what were they? Who wrote them? What influence did they have in the founding era of the United States? Paul Meany directs libertarianism.org. We discussed Cato's letters and their influence in this part one of a two part discussion. I think we have to start here. uh, When people see The letters Mm -hmm. C-A-T-O, as in the Cato Institute, they assume that Cato is named for a Roman senator, uh, one of two in particular. Uh, But that is not true.
1: No. Some people have asked me if it's an acronym or not. Uh, That's another classic. But It's it's Caleb and the others is what
0: I, what I like
1: to say. But go ahead. So some people ask me if it's an acronym. Some people are a little smarter about it and say, is it Cato the Younger or Cato the Elder? But the answer is, it's kind of Cato the Younger, but it's also not at all. Uh, Cato Institute is actually named after Cato's Letters, which were a collection of 138 originally, but then six more were added in at the end. But these are letters that were about the nature of the limits of power for government. They're about the nature of free speech, when to resist government, when government authority goes too far. They covered a wide, wide range of topics, and they became extremely popular during the founding.
0: So... Uh, In that era, uh, well, first of all, detail the authors, Trenchard and Gordon, who are these people?
1: So there's John Trenchard and Thomas Gordon. John Trenchard was a very, very wealthy man. He went off to attend school in Ireland in Trinity College, Dublin, where I went, which is a nice little touch. And he was already very wealthy from his parents, but then he got into an even wealthier marriage arrangements. So he had all the time in the world to just sit back and write about politics. So that's what he did. And he was a very well-read and interested man. So he wrote about the Standing Army's controversy in England, and he argued that England shouldn't have a Standing Army, a professional waged army. Instead, they should have a militia, because that can't be corrupted. His idea was that if an army is fueled mainly by wages and just professionalism, they won't actually defend the people. They'll be turned upon the people eventually. Thomas Gordon is a little bit more obscure in his origins. He's from Scotland somewhere, but it's hard to be too sure. He might have attended law school, but again, this is we don't really know. But the first time the two come into contact is when Thomas Gordon writes in favor of freedom of conscience and religious liberty. And Trenchard is immediately attracted to him because of the similar ideas they hold. And they meet in a coffee shop in London in the 1718, I think it is. And then they start writing what's called the Independent Whig, which was their first journal that talked about the nature of the church, the church's authority in England, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, all sorts. But Independent Whig was also quite popular, but Cato's Letters became inordinately more popular later on, which is what they started to write about later.
0: And, and Cato's Letters, was uh, were were they meant to be a book, or did they start out as something else? So they started out,
1: there was something called the South Sea Bubble. Uh, England had been in an awful lot of wars and accumulated an awful lot of debt, and they were looking for new ways to deal with this debt. And this is kind of the period in the 1700s when the modern nation states emerging And the people in England were looking over at France, and they had something called the Mississippi Company, created by a man named John Law. And so they saw that this company was able to handle the government's debt. So the British government decided that the best thing to do would be to start a company with a monopoly in trading in the South Seas with the Spanish. Uh, This didn't turn out very well. They actually went to war with Spain quickly after this monopoly was granted. The company never really was profitable or made any money whatsoever, but it did take on the English government's debt. And by doing that, it had this massive inflated stock price. And then through financial manipulation, the people who are running the show behind the scenes basically made out like bandits, while other people were eventually swallowed up into speculation mania, but then lost fortunes overnight when the company collapsed. But the real big thing about the South Sea bubble and the scandal that came out of it was that... Tons of politicians, tons of people in high places all knew what was going on and were completely gaming the system. And so some scholars think that Cato's letters originally starts as an attack against capitalism. They're attacking this big company and what it's done to the public. But what they're really attacking is the unholy alliance of the state and private enterprise. That's what they find really scary.
0: So you mentioned that, uh, of course, these were written in Great Britain. Yes. Uh, but they were popular in the U.S. Extremely popular in the U.S. Before the U.S. was the U.S. Yes. Uh, in the colonies, let's say. And so uh, what was the attraction there? What? What? How did they become popular in the early part of the 18th century?
1: So one part of it is that you didn't want to publish writings that were too controversial or too critical of the crown. Uh, so a tactic around that was to publish things. That had already been written before, so republishing Cato's letters was kind of like its own little civil disobedience. We can't complain directly about monarchy. What we'll do is we we'll get these very famous, esteemed Englishmen who are quite popular, and we'll let them complain about monarchy for us. And you find all across America, Cato's letters are reprinted in newspapers and pamphlets. They're constantly quoted. Um, when a young Benjamin Franklin was writing about free speech under the pseudonym Silence Do Good he liberally quotes Cato's letters. When John Dickinson writes letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania, again, he liberally quotes Cato's letters. Uh, Thomas Jefferson has them as an influence. By the 1770s, John Adams admits that they're a popular reading. And when you go to the, the data of it and go down to the catalogs of libraries, most private libraries have some sort of Cato's letters, the collection of them, even more than John Locke. And usually John Locke is kind of held up as the the most influential and important thinker of the American Revolution. But it turns out Cato, Cato being Cato's letters, was quoted just as much, if not more, than John Locke, and their books were more popular. So it's really interesting for the historiography of it.
0: What does it mean that these guys were subjects uh, on the other side of the ocean for Americans to be reading this case that they're presenting for freedom writ large.
1: So it's not that bizarre that they're Englishmen and they see a lot to admire within them because throughout Cato's letters, you see that Trenchard and Gordon have a huge amount of intellectual resources to draw from. They draw from the English Commonwealth tradition, but they also draw from ancient thinkers and they take a few more modern people. So they discuss Locke, Hobbes, Cicero, Tacitus. They have a huge range of people. But above all else, what Cato's letters was doing was Justifying the glorious revolution of sixteen eighty nine, this new settlement, this new way of England, they really liked the status quo. Sometimes it doesn't come across like that. It looks like they viciously hate the English government. And they did, in many respects, but in a lot of ways, they thought England's greatest days were ahead of them. And they thought that England was not a republic, but it's as close as you could be to a republic without being one. So, it's also different. The Americans didn't think of themselves as American at the time, as I've already touched on. It wasn't really that bizarre to talk about the great Englishmen of the past because a lot of great Englishmen were already heroes in America. People like Algernon Sidney and John Lilburn were already well-known and considered martyrs for freedom.
0: It's interesting that you note that because Benjamin Franklin considered himself a subject uh, and was perfectly happy to do that for most of his career. Uh, And yet he, at some point, decides, I'm going to quote these guys to make the case for freedom that we are seeing uh, impinged here in those colonies.
1: So this is like a, a point I like to make to Americans. I'm not from America, I'm Irish, but Americans often forget that they had a large amount of influence from the English world. And there's a lot of English political writers who kind of form the core of what American beliefs are. And there's an awful lot of these people. And it's people like John Locke, but it's also people like Algernon Sidney that are often quite forgotten that these people were put not as equals, but they're both highly esteemed figures. Normally now, historians like to put people like Locke on a bit of a pedestal because they've got a bit more of a digestible philosophy and it makes a bit more sense. It's a little less patchworky than people like Algernon Sidney, but it was a common heritage in America. They had a lot of the same beliefs as Englishmen and for a long time, they did think of themselves as Englishmen. And when you see the a lot of the debates in the early revolutionary period, they were discussing their rights as Englishmen. Uh, what Cato's letters does is it kind of radicalizes the conversation just a little bit further, because a lot of Cato's letters is about fundamental principles. So some of the letters are about very, very particular minute details of politics at the time, but a lot of them deal with the overarching principles. Uh, a large theme in Cato's writing is that words get messed up, is that we, you know, What one person might call virtuous might not be virtuous to another. And so they feel this need to kind of explain, let's go back all the way to first principles and explain exactly what this whole government thing is for in the first place. And what they find is a kind of synthesis of many answers put together that forms a very, very radical way of viewing the government that at the time was very modern and new.
0: Yeah, and uh, under their analysis, almost every government in the world at the time would have been found wanting.
1: Yeah, there's like a really interesting theme throughout Cato's letters where it's almost like this apocalyptic scene that they conjure up where they're saying the world's depopulated. Most of the world lives in absolute slavery and misery. And it's not that weird that they talk about the world in such an apocalyptic sense because Trenchard and Gordon were huge admirers of the Roman world. And when you look back, Rome had one million people in it at its zenith or more and so the world comparatively does look kind of depopulated and does look kind of unenlightened by comparison. And they're only at the kind of the, the very, very beginning of the Enlightenment. They're starting to see progress. A lot of the ideas that we now consider so important to the modern world are starting to emerge. But at the same time, people are still wearing powdered wigs and have these big old tomes. But Cato's Letters is definitely a very pessimistic tone about the world and a bit of a pessimistic tone about liberty in general. There's an idea that power is kind of this active thing. It goes out, it looks for threats, it finds what will possibly come up to usurp its position. Well, liberty is a more passive thing that's constantly hunted across the globe, and it even furnishes its enemies with all the weapons to defeat itself. So it's a much rarer thing. And um, another thing to take into account is, why were the Americans so obsessed with these English writers? Well, one of the things is, there's not many examples of republics around the world at the time. You know, republics Sound great in theory, and lots of thinkers in the medieval ages even were discussing what a republic might look like. but the kind of inconvenient truth is just not many of them lasted very long, and so there wasn't really much to go off of, so things like Cato's letters, talking with the English Commonwealth, talking about the Venetian Republic and the Rome Republic, and to a lesser extent the Athenians, they needed these sort of intellectual resources because there wasn't much out in the world that looked like what they were doing, and that's why when America eventually is founded it's it's motto on the seal was a new order for the ages.
0: Why were these books forgotten?
1: I think they're forgotten because they're a little complicated. They don't really fit into any one label particularly well. They, so I'll give you an example. People who like the writings of John Locke will be very comfortable in some of the letters of Cato. They talk about the state of nature. They talk about how property is a natural right. They talk about the nature of government, how it's formed by people coming together in a state of nature through consent. They give away some of their rights, well, the right of executing the laws of nature to live in a more comfortable existence. And if those terms of the civil government are ever broken, they can rise up against it with the right to resistance. However, that's the Lockean part of Cato. But then they also take a bit of Hobbesian psychology. They talk about the nature of man. They've got a very, very low opinion of human nature. They think that people are ruled not by reason. They're ruled by passion. They're ruled by their minds. People are on hamster wheels, constantly looking for the next high, the next piece of wealth, absolutely anything. People are just constantly looking. And they think this translates even worse into politics because in your regular life, you might... Cover a lot more money. And that means you go in off and you work hard and, you know, maybe your family life suffers because of it, but eventually you might get some money and that might not make you very happy, but oh well. But in politics, it's even worse because you get someone who's in charge of millions of people and they're constantly looking for more power, constantly looking for more wealth. And once they get it, all they think is, well, how can I get more? Because humans are just like that. So they have a really low opinion humans. But then on top of that, they also take in some older stuff, like they take some of the writings of Machiavelli on board, talking about what citizens have to do to keep the commonwealth alive and the nature of ambition and keeping people interested. So there's a lot going on. On top of that, then they start quoting ancient Roman philosophers that quote people like Algernon Sidney. Some of the letters are just reprints of large quotations because they're so, so into these different thinkers. But that's kind of the reason why Cato is a little bit forgotten about. First off, I think most sane people do not want to go read a book from 1720, that is 144 letters long in ye olde English that's written very, very oddly. But on top of that, uh, seemingly no one's particularly happy with what they look like. They don't fall into a category. There's a very large debate in academia over classical republicanism. Do Cato's letters represent this idea. And the idea of classical republicanism is it, it all draws from a similar tradition from Aristotle, Cicero, Tacitus, and Machiavelli. And the conclusions that classical republicans supposedly come to is that virtue is what keeps the commonwealth in order, that keeps a republic alive. And to keep this kind of virtue, you have to have a bit of a distrust for professional armies, but also a distrust for concentrated economic power. And so this leads some scholars think that Cato, ah, Cato's complaining about the South Sea bubble, Cato doesn't like capitalism. That isn't really right at all. The letters also, there's just so many of them, and they deal with so many topics that to come out of it with a systematic philosophy is a little difficult
0: sometimes. That's another big part of it. Paul Meany directs libertarianism.org. That was part one of our conversation. It's that time of year when I ask you, yes, you, to show your support for this podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute with a gift. You can visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you.